Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. I'm host and producer Cody Dronick. Our show airs at 8 p.m. on the third Wednesday of every month. And if you've missed it live, you can check out our podcast at cjsw.com. Tonight we have Canadian musician Eamon McGrath of the band July Talk. Eamon is here to tell us about his novel, Here Goes Nothing. And later on in the program, we have author of the Trickster Trilogy and former University of Calgary CDWP writer-in-residence Eden Robinson. Seven full-length records, multiple continent-spanning tours, and a critically acclaimed work of fiction lay in the wake of 31-year-old Eamon McGrath, whose fierce attitude and work ethic has led him to develop a career that could rival anyone 20 years his senior. He is based in Toronto, Ontario. Eamon McGrath, welcome to Writer's Block here on CJSW. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Our viewers are going to recognize you uh, as a musician. You are the you you play in July Talk, and you also have a solo career. Um, I didn't. I, I don't. I don't play in July Talk. Uh, I, I formed the band uh, twelve years ago now. God, that seems like so long ago. Uh, I started the band with the drummer Danny and uh, Peter. Our, our initial idea was to have a have a band that could um, kind of rip off what No Means No and the Hanson Brothers used to do, which is tour east in Canada as one band and tour back west as another. So we started a three-piece, and then um, both projects got signed to the agency group at the same time, so I had to split. But uh, oh, wow. I did I did start the band, um, and I, I recorded and wrote and played on the first record with them. But, I mean, yeah, God, it's like 2000. 2012 or 13 or something that I that we both had to kind of go our separate ways and we still play together as collaborators all the time um, I write with Peter constantly uh, Danny and I are working on a new record right now uh, I mean they're all like some of my best friends in the whole world but but um yeah like I haven't played in that band for a long time but okay I, got I was you. I was a, I was a founding member and I and I, uh, I I did contribute pretty heavily to the first record. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your novel, Here Goes Nothing? Yeah, um, so that was a book that was kind of uh, written, I will say, semi-simultaneously with uh, the time that my first book, Berlin Wars All Express, was. Okay. Uh, I was kind of writing both books at once, but Here Goes Nothing, I think, as as in development, it kind of emerged to me that um, it was just going to be a way more complex undertaking like Berlin Wars All Express is kind of just like the stream of consciousness uh inner dialogue of one person as they sit on a train across Europe for for a year or whatever the fuck that was but um here goes nothing as I kind of extrapolated that whole idea to to being in a full band and involving you know like a van of people and more cities and more kind of narratives and opinions and dialogue um, it just became really clear that I was dealing with a different kind of thing. So okay. it took, it took a lot longer to write because it was a natural, I mean, it was, it's a novel as opposed yeah. to Berlin Wars All Express, which is kind of just this sort of a psychedelic memoir. Uh, and so Here Goes Nothing was, was scheduled for a later release just because it took way more time to write. What inspired you to start writing? Well, for the most part, it was just something that I, uh, that I could pass the time doing while I was on the train on tour. It kind of just became another aspect of what I do. It happened kind of by accident. I wrote, like I said, Berlin Warsaw Express was written on the train by hand across Europe. And then after about six solo tours of like really long hauls, like two month tours uh, in my twenties, I, I kind of like took inventory of all the writing that I'd done. Um, and just the volumes and volumes and volumes of, of stuff and uh, typed it all out, ordered it in some sort of like what you might describe as some kind of chronological, you know, or like narrative uh, form or whatever. And uh, had a friend of mine submit it to ECW. They loved it and moved on it uh, right away. And within two weeks, I got a book deal. So it was pretty, 
pretty accidental. I mean, I, I like I I would have been really happy to just have a, bur- a book that I'd publish myself at the merch booth. Like that's what I <laughs> predicted, and it ended up becoming something else. You know, a whole other component to uh, my career. But uh, you know, saying that it's like it, it's it falls in the same canon, um, like the themes and the the delivery and the diction and all that are very similar to the way that I would write a song. It's just that certain stories can be told in, in 16 lines and then certain, certain stories you need, you know, 90 pages. So, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, all that stuff is pretty, um, I, I see it as all being like part of the same voice. You know, it's, I mean, it's like, that's why I, I write and record under my own name. You know, I think that it's the same, it's the same perspective on the world. It's just a different medium. And so like, I've always kind of thought that, the albums and the books could sort of occupy the same sort of chronological list on a discography or whatever. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and I've really enjoyed the read. It's, it, there's a, there's a lot of really hilarious, amazing stories on it. And it's very uh, accurate and truthful for anybody who's ever been in a band just starting out or, you know, playing shows. Um, I hope so. You know, I mean, like, yeah. it's like, I, I kind of thought like if the movie Hardcore Logo uh, was a real inspiration, obviously like that movie changed my life. But the thing about it that's always fascinated me is like the idea that it can paint such a horrific version of reality, you know, and the reality that it is to be in a band and have these, you know, these, like toxic relationships and the highs and lows and the, um, you know, all that stuff. It's like, it paints this really awful depiction of it but it's but at the same time once you watch that movie all you want to do is go and start a band you know yeah totally totally and so i kind of wanted to channel the same sort of paradox like you know after you read that book it should be like don't say i didn't warn you but yeah the first thing you should want to do is pick up your guitar and hit the road looking back uh what advice would you give to your younger self or uh or what what can, what advice would you give a musician, young musician, you know, now? Um, I think the most important thing you can do when you're starting out is be very, very honest with yourself um, in terms of, of, of understanding the kind of career you want to have. Right. Because there's, there's an infinite amount of avenues that and pathways you can go down that will mm-hmm. lead to to a certain amount of frustration and a certain amount of contentment and neither, neither like any one of those outcomes has an equal amount of both, you know? Yeah. And, uh, like I'm an artist that has been able to, you know, live in a city I love that's not cheap and, and, uh, you know, have, you know, pay all my bills and have great credit and fucking live comfortably and Mm -hmm. not be broke all the time. And I've been able to do that based on like a simple input output equation of the fact that like in order for those things to happen for me, I need to play a ridiculous amount of shows a year. It's you know, a lot so of work. Absolutely. It's yep. a ton of work. And, uh, you know, I might not have the luxurious kind of career that, um, or what I might consider to be a luxurious kind of career for people that can, you know, upload a single on Spotify and get, five million streams in four days and somehow afford to buy a house, not really doing anything. But, but I mean, I I have no idea what that's like. So I'm sure that that also has its share of intense frustrations. And so, so I think that like, you know, people are really taught to accept this, this false narrative of, of, you know, that there's like this binarial relationship between success and failure. And I think all of that is bullshit. Yeah. And, and uh, that's the most important thing I think you can realize at a young age when you're starting out is that these expectations that you're putting on yourself are, in many cases, non-existent. They don't, they're not real. And uh, for the people that they're real for, um, there's a whole other slew of, of frustrating issues that emerge. I'm, a very comfortable, I'm very comfortable in the life that I've been handed and and i'm really grateful uh and i know that i've had to work really hard for it but i mean i can 
I can make a living playing shows and I can make a living selling books and I can make a living, you know, in all these different revenue streams that I've figured out how to make a living from. And I can walk down the street and not be recognized by, by <laughs> like 10,000 10, people. And I, I really like that's that. That's the perk. Yeah. Like to me, that's a perk. Yeah. No, and I think I found a really, really good balance of trying to like organize my career in a way where um, I've sacrificed, you know, all that I'm willing to sacrifice, and I've, I've, I've been able to, as I hope, like retain some integrity, uh, which is which matters to me infinitely more than money. Thanks for that, man. That's good advice. You know, I, I've seen a lot of people quit playing music because they didn't think that they were, uh, you know, that it was going to amount to something. And yeah, I just kind of, I just, yeah, I mean, like, that, that, that's, and that's, that's, that's fine. I mean, like, if, you know, med, med school is the thing for you, that's, <laughs> that's, that's great because it's like, yeah. but I think the people make those decisions when they don't fully know, uh, what they want to get out of something when they start. They think, uh, everything just kind of lands in place, right? But it's, it's often hard work. And then even, uh, you know, the successful musicians, you know, it's it, it's not an easy uh, career path, but it's a fulfilling one. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of the most successful musicians that you can think of, like, they have someone breathing down their neck about the kind of art that they can make. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and that's just never been an option for me. And, you know, again, because of that, that's one path that I've chosen. And that comes with a cost. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's just like, that's not something that I'm willing to compromise. And... I think I struggled, I struggled for years, uh, trying to, trying to, you know, figure out why I wasn't, um, you know, why certain things weren't working out a certain way or why, you know, this wasn't happening, Mm -hmm. you know, in the, in the way that some, that, you know, some theoretical production schedule or marketing schedule had played it out. And I don't think about that anymore in the same way. I mean, like I, I have had, you know, thousands of, of indescribably amazing experiences that lots of people don't get the chance to have. And mm-hmm. I can put out the kind of record that I want to put out and I have no one telling me what to do. And I, uh, you know, I have a really good situation. Yeah. yeah so yeah, better. I mean, but that, that's, but that's because I chose very early on what kind of career I wanted. What are some of your fondest memories of being on the road? Um, I really like the, uh, the, 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 the super small, like being in Europe and playing like a, uh, a circuit of house shows or something to route yourself to, uh, you know, bigger gigs. Mm-hmm. Those always end up being the shows that I, that I cherish the, the deepest. I think like there's nothing really, really great about, um, you know, people coming together to share the experience of watching you express your perspective of the world and then being able to share the experience with all those people. Um, you know, the experience of, of eating or drinking together or talking or whatever, and not having that, like, uh, you know, the, the alienating kind of fourth wall between mm-hmm. the audience. Yes. Those, those shows end up being the ones that I love the most. Um, again, like to what you were asking me earlier, it's like, those are the shows that any booking agent or manager or whatever will, uh, will tell you that, you know, like never amount to having the biggest effects on your career. But mm-hmm. I mean, that's just a, a lie, you know? Yeah, like, totally. Man. People want that connection. Everybody wants that. The, the performer yeah. does, the audience does. Um, you like, they usually end up paying you better. Uh, they're the most comfortable environments. There's, there's like, not that, not that these shows don't have their place and purpose and aren't, great but you know there's this very like cold there's this kind of coldness of going out you know into a crowd of 250 people on a on a on a dark stage in a in a, in a venue that's huge you can't see anybody and there's stage mm-hmm. lights I mean, the whole that production stuff is awesome too like i i love those shows but um it's just a completely different art form to like go into a situation where you know there's this like inherent trust involved yeah, it's a bit Some, more someone's in, like, intimate, yeah. and you can you can uh, feel the crowd. Um, absolutely, yeah. man. Um, so those those are the shows that end up stick, sticking out in my mind uh, the most. Like the venue in St. Gallen that 
it's ran, ran by this, uh, by this girl named Sylvie that does really great house shows in her apartment. And then there's, uh, I mean, fuck, there's been so many, uh, that kind of stuff. Like really, really, really unique, you know, off the beaten path. Totally. Experiences. That's the stuff that I, that I, I, I look back on. So of all the places that you've been, uh, in your opinion, what are the, the coolest music scenes that you've, you've seen or been a part of? Um, well, it kind of depends on the kind of music that you're, that you're, that you play. Yeah. Like, Berlin is a fantastic city to go to. And, and I mean, playing there is always amazing, but if you're like a live, you know, if you're a live band or you're like a, a songwriter, you know, that's like, it's not the city for you. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a, I wouldn't say a wasted market, but it's like you go into a, a show in Berlin with no expectations for sure, because you're competing against the, the world's biggest techno clubs and they're, right. they're, like, they're 20 feet away from you, you know, and right. you don't go to Berlin without becoming sucked into that community because it's everywhere. It's way bigger you know? over there. Yeah. And it's just, it's all encompassing. Like techno in Berlin, it's like, it's like a virus, you know, it's like you <laughs> go there and you don't, it's all you want to do. Right. And you can, you can go clubbing 21st hours a day. So, and uh, compare that to a place like Nashville where it's, you know, 100%. you walk a block exactly. and then there's, you know, nothing but country bands and blues bands. And... Yeah. So, I mean, hmm. like th- those are, those are two great examples of like, of like jaw dropping music cities that are completely, like in, in opposite ends of the spectrum. And then, you know, like, yeah, a city like, like St. John's, Newfoundland is like one of the top music cities in the world because it's like, you cannot go 10 feet without some like, you know, a grade musician playing a, a jig or something. Mm-hmm. New Orleans is the same thing for, for jazz. Like you cannot walk 10 feet without coming face to face with like, like one of the greatest musicians you've ever seen in your life. who Like no one knows the name of, Yeah. Um, you know, for like cross punk or something, Leipzig is the center of the universe. Uh, oh, yeah. you know, I mean like, I mean all, all those places like, uh, you know, like all those cities are great. I, I, uh, I really love playing in Zurich. Personally, that's a, a, a city that has sort of taken me under its wing so to speak. Oh, why is that? Uh, just the, the, the community of people there just really connects with what I do. Um, I've got some really great friends. Uh, they're incredibly open-minded. It's always worth going. Uh, I mean, that Zurich is, is fantastic. Okay. Um, lots of cities in Germany. I mean, so many in Germany. That's been my home away from home for, for most of my life. Uh, yeah, and then there's, like, weird, like, cities go through sort of, like, 13-year revolutionary cycles, you know? Like, hmm. you you might find a place that, like, sort of takes you in, like, its own or whatever, and then, you know, six or seven people move away, and then it all changes for you. And then that, that gets replaced by another market, you know? Like, for a long time, I remember it was, like, Guelph. I, like, I used to, we used to book show, like, book tours around Saturday nights in Guelph, and then you know, a couple of the key people that were really bringing us there, uh, you know, they moved away or they got married or they graduated school or whatever. They moved to Toronto or blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then all, and then all of a sudden it's like, you're starting from ground zero in that city again. Um, and that happens all the time. Um, so yeah, it's like, I guess what I'm going to say is that it's not, it's not the place, but the, the community of people that exist within it that, that sort of make it what it is. Absolutely. And, and, and that is kind of just like rotating, shifting thing. Like lots of people, people move around. And so they bring that spirit with them. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, after, after all this madness is over, it'll be interesting to see how these places have changed. Oh yes. Yeah. I won't it ever. It'll be so nice to, you know, get things back to normal. That's what everybody's waiting for, especially, especially people in show business and the, the music industry. It's been, been a crazy year to say the least you know well and there's people like in toronto for example like some of my best friends here have had to move away 
you know, like venues close down or they, they, they lose the lease on their bar or they can't afford their apartment. So they, yeah. they fuck off somewhere. And then it's like, uh, so who knows what that'll mean for the rest of Canada. It'll be you interesting. Know? Yeah. So, I mean, but, that extrapolate that to the entire world and it's like, uh, it's going to be a completely different landscape. And in a lot of ways, I think it'll be like, um, starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you? Uh, is there anything you're working on right now? As far as novel oh, actually, show? So, yeah, yeah. One of the, uh, I've got a new book in the works uh, that I'm, I'm almost ready to start, start uh, pitching some people. And then um, putting out a new single on April 2nd, which is actually one of the songs that I think you guys are featuring t- today, which is cool. Yeah. So this is sort of the sneak, sneak peek of that new song. I don't think it's been heard anywhere. Oh, wow. Before, before uh, today on oh, awesome, TV. Looking forward to um, that. Yeah, so there's that. And then, uh, I mean, still sort of chipping away on, on you know, anything I can do release-wise for the, the book that just came out. But, um, I mean, I think that's going to really kick into gear again when I can start playing shows. Totally, again. man. And then, uh, yeah, there's a new record in the can that we're trying to figure out when and how to release. And um, that should hopefully be out by the end of the year. Uh, so yeah, lots of stuff. I mean, I think it's been a bit of an adjustment period in terms of how to stay busy when you're not, when you're not, uh, away from home all the time. But, uh, but, uh, I mean, there's also lots of things that happened this year and I was able to do creatively that I don't think I ever would have done and I've been, um, you know, on a plane to Paris or whatever. Yeah. That's one thing I've been trying to do too is just look at the the bright side and try to see it as more of a gift of, of time to kind of reconnect and you know not not have a million places to be. So yeah, and I think a lot of the whole world I think was like a a powder keg that really needed that that, that totally. you know a lot of reflection. I think I, who knows what would have happened if uh, everything had kept going, but. Um, I mean, yeah. I was at the point where I was I was playing so much that I, I probably wouldn't have been home at all this year. So it was cool. I got to kind of re-evaluate some things. And I, I mean, I, I've been writing and recording more than I've been able to in, in ages because, you know, I haven't had access to the space or time. So mm-hmm. that's been good. Um, lots of positive things have come out of this, but it's definitely going to be good to uh, get on tour again. Do you mind if I ask? Do you, do you have any assumption as to when that might be? Or I mean, I, I, uh, I over the past eighteen months, I've like, I've, 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 I've had to reschedule so many things, um, because of of hunches and and predictions that people have made that have turned out to be wrong that I've made gotcha. that have turned out to be wrong. I got gotcha. I, I don't even. I don't want to I don't speculate. Even, I'm not even putting money down on it anymore. Yeah, and and, and uh, I mean, I've had I've had I got shows. I've got like offers for shows in Europe for the fall, but I mean, by the looks of it, I doubt there's going to be any international traveling. But that doesn't mean that um, you know live music with, with in, within Canada won't happen right away. Yeah, hopefully. So man. there's there's no way to know. I mean, yeah. And I think for now, it's just the best thing that people can do is sort of pack for the storm and just create and record and write. And take full advantage of of uh, the access you have to to space and time. You know, totally. Um, was there anything that uh, you wanted to talk about while I still have you uh, with us here um, that I didn't bring up earlier in the interview? No, I mean I think you covered pretty much all the bases. Yeah. Well, all right, man. Um, Thanks again so much for joining us and uh, for our listeners out there, the book is Here Goes Nothing by uh, Eamon McGrath and uh, yeah, Eamon, thanks again. Uh, Yeah, I really appreciate it and uh, I mean, I I love CGSW. I've been a long time uh, long time ally of of Albertan Community Radio so I appreciate you reaching out. Thanks a lot, man. For those of you just tuning in with us on CJSW, that was Eamon McGrath. And up next, we have a sneak peek of Eamon's new single due out April 2nd. Here is April by Eamon McGrath. 
to prove Saluting the dearly departed As the bullets fly up over the roof listening to Writer's Block here on CJSW, and that was April by Eamon McGrath. Up next, we have a feature interview with Eden Robinson. Heisla Heltzuk novelist Eden Robinson is the author of a collection of novellas written when she was a goth called Traplines, which won her the Winfred Holtby Prize in the UK. Her next novels, Monkey Beach and Blood Sugars, were written before she discovered she was gluten intolerant and tend to be quite grim, the latter being especially gruesome because halfway through writing it, Robinson gave up a two-pack-a-day cigarette habit and the more she suffered, the more her characters suffered. 
Even so, Monkey Beach won the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize and was a finalist for the Giller Prize and the Governor General's Award for Fiction. By the time Eden began her Trickster Trilogy, she had given full reign to her matriarchal tendencies. The first book, Son of a Trickster, became a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and Canada Reads. Trickster Drift, the second book in the trilogy, won the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. In 2017, Eden was awarded the Writers' Trust Fellowship. Eden lives in Kittenack Village, British Columbia. Eden Robinson, welcome to CJSW Writers Block. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So, I don't know how anybody in Canada could not have heard about your Trickster trilogy by now because it is <laughs> just, I know, been getting a ton of attention over the, the past 10 years. But, I was wondering, could you just give listeners who aren't familiar with the story kind of a, a, a little synopsis of um, this, this third book in your trilogy, um, Trickster Drift? Uh, the Trickster Trilogy, uh, the main narrator is Jared Martin. And uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> he's one of the 535 children of We Get. The Transforming Raven. He is the Heisla trickster. And uh, on the coast, the trickster figure is in all of the potlatching cultures, and he has a lot of different roles. And there's a spectrum of tricksters, like from benevolent to malignant. Uh, the Heisla trickster falls somewhere in the middle. And um, so in the first book, uh, we're introduced to Jared and his world, uh, Kitimat and Kitimat Village. Um, and he discovers that his father is not Phil, but in fact, we get. Uh, and in the second book, uh, Jared's trying to make a break from uh, the life that he is living right now to the life he wants. So he goes to Vancouver and stays with his aunt while he goes to school to upgrade to get into the medical sonography program at BCIT. And uh, his aunt has been estranged from Jared's mother and his uh, grandmother. Uh, there's a lot of backstory that, you know, at this point, Jared's not interested in hearing he just wants to get through the school year. Um, now that he's accepted that he is the son of a trickster, he doesn't really want anything to do with magic because it can be scary and chaotic. And what he wants most in life is peace and normality. And <laughs> uh, instead he gets uh, stalked by one of his mom's exes and towards the end of the novel, uh, he is in a showdown with his aunt, who has been using bad magic for a long time and has become an ogress. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't really want to spoil too much of it, but, um, but it ends with Jared escaping from the universe that he's trapped. Georgina slash Jolassenden. Um, so the final novel in the Trickster series uh, starts about two hours after Trickster Drift ended. So Jared has returned to our universe and he's in the Kimet General Hospital. And although he has trapped his aunt in the other universe, she still has connections in this universe and she's trying to force Jared to bring her back. Uh, so she weaponizes his empathy and his connection to his family and his created family. Um, so through the book, Jared is trying to just basically survive. Um, and this is the absolute lowest point in his life. And, you know, the only thing that gets him through are the connections that he has made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And and that sounds really simple and straightforward. And <laughs> what you're not saying is that that poor boy goes through a shit ton of hell. <laughs> and is also surrounded by the most incredible, incredibly powerful love and story. And, um, and it's, it's this whole discovery for him. Um, I read that originally you had intended to write a short story with a specific cousin of yours in mind. And, you know, here you are 10 years later uh, with a complex trilogy and a, and a busload of intense characters. How did that happen, Eden? I was trying to write my trashy Van Council romance, and it was just getting way out of hand. Like, there was, uh, like, there was, I couldn't rein in, like, anything. It just, just went everywhere, and I had a huge mess, and I didn't know what to do with it. Um, so I thought, well, you know, my niece and nephew were visiting, and Dad was trying to tell them a trickster story, and they didn't really find it. They found it interesting, and they loved Baba's stories, but, you know, they weren't laughing the way, you know, like they didn't have any context for it. So that really made me kind of sad, and I wanted to write a story that would... Uh, contextualized we get and you know that would have modern references so that you know they could see why he was funny and complex and all these wonderful things because uh, those are the stories that I grew up with and mm -hmm. I grew up family of storytellers so uh, one of the things that I'm not good at is like telling stories orally in the way that they do like that gift has completely skipped me but it was a great relief that I found writing because you know you can edit writing <laughs> you know like the my brain works in mysterious ways and you know there's lots of asides uh, I hop around in time and you know I, I get distracted uh, so when I'm telling a story, it's not as powerful as like when I'm writing a story. Mm -hmm. uh, but but it's it's such a relief to be able to tell stories. Um, so when I first started writing the short story, it was from Wiggett's point of view, and uh, I've been saying that it's it's like writing a, a Sherlock Holmes story from the point of view of Sherlock. It gets a mm -hmm. little braggy. Uh, so I knew I needed a Watson, so at first I was trying to tell the story from Wiget's point of view. I, no, who who isn't exactly a reliable narrator, I guess. No, really. Really. Yeah. no. Uh, <laughs> very much concerned with how he looks and, you know, how he's coming off and will sort of twist the story. Uh, and then I tried for Maggie, but that's kind of turned into a more of a fight club kind of book. Uh, and, you know, I had, I had abandoned the short story collection in 2008. It was called, uh, uh, I think it was Prayers from the Body. It was about an intertribal dance group in East Vancouver that formed and then fell apart. So it was uh, my commitment in the East Band. Mm -hmm. So I... One of the fragments that was left over was uh, a young man arriving in Vancouver uh, on the Greyhound bus. And it was very lonely and full of, like, all the insecurity of starting your life in a new city with no resources. Uh, and once I brought that fragment into the trickster world, uh, Jared was born. Mm -hmm. And Jared became the narrator of the story Rip. Like, it, I quickly got to 50 pages, and I realized it was probably a novella. Uh, so, and then when I hit 400 pages, it was like, oh, I think it's a novel. <laughs> 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 Pretty sure it's a novel. <laughs> and and maybe, maybe more than that. <laughs> oh, no, it wasn't, uh, well, you know, uh, I, had, I have a lot of first readers, um, my my process is messy, and I've I've learned to accept that my first you know the rough drafts are always going to be ugly, uh, 
because if I don't give myself freedom to have like a, a messy first, you know, first run, then I stall mm-hmm. and stuck. Uh, whereas if I just put it down, it's not an order, you know, the characters are all, might all change. Uh, I might have like a random character in there that suddenly becomes the narrator. That's, um, so, I, you know, I usually, uh, because this has gotten me into trouble with previous editors, <laughs> uh, I usually give, like, that that initial draft to first readers. Um, for Son of a Trickster, I gave it to ten first readers. Um, five other novelists, like, I'll read their first drafts if they read mine. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And five sort of uh, cultural and technical experts because I was using uh, First Nations that I'm not from. So, um, you know, that can get tricky. Mm-hmm. I just want to the, the kind of world I live in where, in you know, in BC, there's a lot of different First Nations and we wander in, any, in each other's lives. But I did want to be uh, respectful and uh, I wanted to know that I was, you know, and usually when you do the consultations, what comes out of it is uh, a lot of conversations and much, much more detail. So it, it makes the world richer. So I like to bring them in like very early in the process. And some people want to see the whole book, and some people just want you to contextualize the scene that they're looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have their own lives. They have a lot of obligations. So... Uh, the biggest criticism of the first draft was that the last third was very confusing. And what I'd started to do was, uh, I'd started to, like the presence of the book was Vancouver. And I kept flashing back to Kitimat, and there were so many flashbacks, I decided to put them in separate chapters. Like it was, So it would be Vancouver, Kitimat, Vancouver, Kitimat, Vancouver, Kitimat. Mm-hmm. There was a different cast of characters. They were, you know, they were all moving towards a different end. So uh, across the board, everyone found that confusing. And there were funny bits, and they were trying to figure out what happened more than they were enjoying the book. So I tried to solve that by clumping all the kid in that bits together and so it turned out to be like a 100-page novella in the middle of the novel. <laughs> <laughs> and that works as well as it sounds. It would. <laughs> so that was the draft that we pitched to different editors. Uh, uh, and um, uh, the editor that I ended up working with was Ann Collins. And she has... She, just had like a lot of amazing feedback um, and one of the things that she suggested was that since there were so many complexities in the manuscript maybe we should simplify one or two of them so that the reader to give the reader a break <laughs> yeah so she suggested moving like the kidmat section to the beginning to make the manuscript more linear so that you wouldn't have to follow all the time jumps in addition mm-hmm. to everything else. And as a nonlinear thinker, that was radical. <laughs> but once I did that, that little fragment, like that 100 pages, blossomed into 400 pages. I think by the end of it, I realized that it was a separate novel. And in the book, community is, is a, a really powerful factor. There's, there's a bunch of different things going on in, in these stories. One of the things I, I thought about a lot was how Jared, part of his magic is, as you said, his empathy. But people really hate it when he changes. You know, he tries so hard. And every time he changes, like, they just kind of shit on him. The poor guy. First when he chooses sobriety. And then, you know, later when they find out uh, when he, that he's a trickster. Tell us about that. What, like, what, what was that? element about? Well, I think that there's sort of a cult of positivity where everyone's like, you know, this, 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 you know, change is good. But actually, we're really uncomfortable with change, even when it brings 
Like, mm-hmm. Sometimes someone else's change is really about you. Yeah. Uh, and how you feel judged by that change. Uh, and that's, you know, his mother has, Jared's mother hasn't gotten a lot of support. Um, so she has been on her own for a very long time. And, you know, she she is as much of a people person as Jared is. Um, but she would never admit it. And uh, when Jared changes, she sees it as a direct reflection of his opinion of her life. For Jared, it's strictly about survival. He just wants to get through uh, the insanity of his life. And magic has brought a lot of chaos, and he has no control over it when he's using, so he just wants to stay in a very peaceful place. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, but in the third book, that shift, uh, not because of magic, not because of events, but because Jared has had a shift. Jared can now see his parents as people. And I think that's a, a huge part of coming of age, mm-hmm. where not expecting your parents to just be your parents, where you understand that they've gone through their own trauma. And sometimes they're dealing with it well, and sometimes they aren't, and it's not really a reflection on you. Yeah. So yeah. Once, Jared, once Jared has that shift, his relationship with Phil and Maggie changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, Maggie's had, like, a, a horrible experience as we get, and, uh, you know, she hasn't been able to work through any of that. <laughs> she shot his head off. <laughs> oh, yeah, and the, the you know, uh, the things that we had to trim from the third draft. Like, I think I'm finally getting plot. Okay, I don't think I'm quite there yet, but before, to me, it was like a, you know, something that I had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I was more interested in the character and their inner world. And so for, for every single book or story up to this point, you know, my entire focus has been um, the inner complexity of these characters. And I think it was, it was in the third draft where I finally went, oh, Oh, plot is just consequences. It's <laughs> you, you do something, and there's a chain reaction, and, yeah. then react, and then it comes back, and it was like, oh, so once I saw that, it became very clear uh, which, you know, which parts of the narrative weren't moving. You know, when you kill your darlings, it's always painful. There were there were so many wonderful threads that were never going to fit into this narrative because it was about Jared. Mm-hmm. And it didn't reflect on him, even though it was interesting. Um, and I loved it. it. It had to go. So the third draft was all about finally seeing how plot shapes the book. And it was like, oh! <laughs> I know it's not a big revelation to anyone else, <laughs> but it was it was huge to me. Um, I also, um, up to this point, every single novel and short story has been from a, a singular point of view. And with the stories that I want to tell, uh, they demand multiple narrators. So I've been reading a lot of books with multiple narrators to see how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been trying out that skill in just writing exercises. Um, in the third draft, I think I finally understood how to make the different voices reflect who the people were and how they worked into the narrative and where they had to go and what information they relayed and um, but it's, you know, every writer has a gift and every writer has things that they're weak at. And I find that um, it's really easy to lean on my guests. Uh, and really, you know, it's a bit of a, it, it kind of bruises my ego <laughs> when I'm bad at something. 
<laughs> you know, but that's like, how you learn, right? Like yeah. that's how you learn and grow. Just like Jared trying to do things yeah. differently. Yeah, mm. and it's like, okay, well, if you don't work on the parts that the parts of your toolkit that aren't as sharp as others, then then you're going to be telling the same stories all the time. Yeah, yeah. So, in many ways. Trilogy seems to me like a testament to tough working class people, you know, they're just doing their best, their damn best to get through this hard scrabble life. And a lot of that's missing from Canadian books, I find. Um, what's in, what's important to you about giving that a voice? Well, I, I think that, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, when you see the books that are out there, uh, a lot of the really successful ones are, you know, set in cities or suburbs. And there's very few that are set uh, in places like Kitanat. Mm-hmm. And there's very few that are set, you know, um, it's outside of urban areas. And, you know, this is, this is where I grew up. I grew up with a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of people were working in company towns, like my dad worked for um, Alcan, uh, but he really liked working on the land. And, you know, a lot of my aunties were uh, very, uh, you know, very deep into, uh, uh, you know, the Red Power Movement. Um, you know, they were working in canneries. There was a, you know, it was an industry that was going through a lot of angst. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, so I grew up with a lot of pro-union people. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of those conversations have made me think about, like, you know, who do you want, like, what kind of Canada do you want to reflect in your novels, and mm-hmm. um, it turned out the the stories that I was most interested in were the stories uh, that I grew up hearing. Yeah. And, you know, so I don't think you know when I do workshops, uh, a lot of the baby writers want to set the novels in Vancouver or Toronto. And not in, you know, the place where they grew up because it's small and boring. And, and, you know, who'd be interested? Who would would pick that up? Who would buy that? And I was like, oh, you know, for me, the power of the story comes from the place. Mm -hmm. And there there are no boring places. There are no boring subjects. It's, It's your passion. So if you invest all your time and energy and art in something, it's going to be interesting. Uh, and, you know, I think there has been, a, a, you know, a weird homogenization in publishing where the publishing houses are condensing and condensing and condensing. Um, so I think that has affected a lot of the variety of this. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's it's a tumultuous time. It's, I remember um, when I first started out in the the mid nineties, like there were so many different arts programs. Um, yeah. like radio programs, there were T V programs. Um and that started shifting even as I went even twenty years ago when I, you know, was touring Funky Beach. So, you know, so there have been so many different ways that the industry has shifted. So for the writers who are coming into publishing at this crushing moment in time, um, you know, I, I worry that there isn't a lot of support. Yeah. So when you're starting out your career, you know, you're basically having to self-promote. Okay, last question. You, you touched on it. You touched on it a little bit in the beginning with your 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 first readers, but. I was curious about how you balance what your stories teach about indigenous culture 
and honoring the stories itself, you know, the pacing or what the characters need to say to do. And, and, um, and how do you know you're getting that part right? Uh, consultation, consultation, consultation. Yeah. Uh, there's, it was, with Monkey Beach, it was a really steep learning curve for me because it was my first novel. And it was also a steep learning curve because traditionally the Haisla are oral storytellers. And they had some truly horrific experiences with other people writing about the Haisla, uh, where there was a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation about potlatching and um, that, that was damaging and hurtful. Mm-hmm. So, so when I started talking about Monkey Beach, um, I went in with absolutely no idea how to balance the story I wanted to tell with, um, you know, the the way I wanted to hold my community. Um, and <laughs> a lot of frank and really painful conversations. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, it, it's very different with each indigenous community, with, with my community in particular. Um, there is a high copyright uh, where uh, both my parents come from potlatching culture. So I understood intuitively that, you know, there were things that were... Um, were owned by other people, and I'd have to ask permission to tell those stories. Mm-hmm. A part of the payment would be throwing a potlatch, and those are, they run from ten to forty thousand uh, dollars. And because I have a name, but it's not a big name, I would have to attach my business to someone else's potlatch, which would require a level of diplomacy that, you know, you would expect from someone who worked in the UN. Um, and yeah, that just, sounds, <laughs> that just sounds like overwhelmingly complicated. So I've always stuck to the, the, the cultural material that is in the highest public domain. Um, and when I move closer to the stuff that is owned by other people, I'm very conscious of my choices and the possible impacts. So I'm very careful with the cultural material, sensitive cultural material. Um, but I feel very free to explore the messiness of my characters. Um, and that's, all those experiences I took into writing Son of the Trickster and Trickster Drift and Return of the Trickster. I'm always going to hold my community with as much care and integrity as I can bring to the table. Um, Because I understand that the culture is made up of all the people that I love. Well, I, as, as your reader, one of your many readers, I just want to say thank you for um, the the amazing creativity and the deep integrity uh, that you bring to your work and these incredible, incredible stories that you have given us. I'm very grateful. And thank you so much for being on Writer's Block today, too. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to Writer's Block here on CJSW. Thanks again to our guests, Amy McGrath and Eden Robinson. This is host Cody Dronick signing off.